Hello and welcome to the Deep Sea Podcast, a punk take on a science podcast about everything deep sea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. With me as ever is Professor Alan Jameson. You're right, mate. Hello, Tom. Hello. Hello. No, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. It's very polite of you. I like to check in on you. These are a good excuse. Yeah. Right, so let's dive straight in. Recent news, there's been some good stuff, actually. One that caught my eye was bioluminescence in deep sea sharks. It's sort of been known about for a while, but this is the, I'd say, probably one of the most involved studies so far about the actual cells that produce the light, the structures that produce the light, the hormonal control. We really sort of get to grips with how these animals are producing this light and, and why. And this included the kite fin shark, which grows to almost two meters long. So it's currently the largest bioluminescent vertebrate. They're usually found deeper than 300 meters, but have been reported as deep as 1800 meters. And they mainly eat other sharks, actually, other smaller sharks. Also, from gut content analysis, uh, we think that they may grab and take bites out of larger fish as well, uh, like their relative, the cookie cutter shark, which is also a bioluminescent shark and a really interesting one to look up if you want to get into a uh, strange deep sea creature. They found quite complex patterns in the illumination. They suggested it was counter-illumination to cancel out any sort of downwelling light, but there did seem to be sexual differences and differences in the luminosity around the sort of pelvic zone. So the other theory is for intraspecies communication and for reproduction and even sort of for shoaling, for allowing the sharks to shoal and to move together with these signals. What I found really interesting was that it's hormonally controlled. So it's not going to be a, a rapid sort of impulse illumination. It was actually controlled by the same hormones that classically control pigmentation in sharks. So I found that really interesting that it was controlled by the endocrine system rather than by nervous control. How about you, Alan? What did you find this month? Do you fancy a top 10? Oh, yeah, always. Yeah. Always. Treehugger.com have listed their 10 bizarre deep sea creatures. Okay. And no cheating now, right? We've got 10, oh, I'm going to brace myself for this. Number one. What do you reckon number one will be? Is number one the best? I don't think it's in order. I think it's just 10 of interesting ones. You've already said one. Cookie Cutter comes in at number four on this. I will I will then go for the Blobfish. No. Really? I'm really surprised by that, actually, yeah. I was really surprised. Blobfish was not in there. Gulper Eel? Close. Not quite. There, I'll, 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 you'll never get this one, but the, the Pacific Black Dragon's in there. <laughs> number five. Very specific. Yes. On a previous podcast, we mentioned number six, which was the ram's horn squid and the giant isopod, which in the cartoon Octonauts was given an Irish accent. There you go. Pop trivia for you. You can start to overthink why they give certain species yeah. certain voices in the Octonauts. We've got a theory that there's some sort of class struggle going on there. So when they say what kind of regional accent we're going to give it, so well, what is it? So it's a foot-long woodlouse that lives in the deep sea. Irish. <laughs> decision making in that was at all there you go number two is the Dumbo octopus which is cool and number three is one of your personal favourites Tom it's the faceless cask hey yeah finally recognised it's made it now number this is incredible number seven vampire squid right just because so uh, number eight is the Japanese spider crab we all love a big spider crab and I think which is actually the coolest of all of these is the armoured sea robin like a deep sea oh garage. they're great yeah you know, cracking little fish the sort of two prongs on the snout yeah yeah they're like heavily armoured gurners but they have these really bizarre protrusions on the snout and there's a picture of one here just like harassing a brittle star it looks like a fish that harasses 
Yeah, it's just, it's just I just go around just making other people's lives misery. The other thing in the news I thought was quite cool was the Chinese have developed a soft bionic robot for deep sea exploration, and it was all based on one of the the Hadle snailfish. So it's a soft bodied vehicle which apparently is very environmentally friendly. It's really small, and I don't think at the moment it's recording anything or has any sensors on it. I think they're just demonstrating this kind of technology of... Yeah, it's like a platform. Yeah, that's learning from nature and trying to, trying to rethink how, how vehicles work. I thought that was, that was really, really interesting. But the thing I did like... It's familiar looking, isn't it? It's got a picture of the robot next to the picture of a snailfish. That snailfish is a computer model of a picture that I took. And I've just mentioned this because it's amazing that when you take... A really distinctive photograph suddenly you know this particular one has gone it just keeps coming back in all sorts of different places it ended up on the blue planet poster i remember walking into a an aquarium in south africa i had one day off and we just sort of moseyed around and i went into the aquarium and, and on the big infographic on the wall the snailfish was that i've seen it in papers i've seen it in all sorts of internet videos and everything else but what's cool here is they've obviously remodeled it and they've even included the damage on it so you can see on its fins it has this nick taken out of it it's a very specific fish. It was also the one that there's some, I wouldn't say the name of the ship, it was a very famous ship that had a, a mural painted on it to commemorate our discovery, actually, of the deepest fish, but they accidentally painted that one. So it's so cool. It's a bit like the moon analogy. It doesn't matter how much you say it's not that one. It's like, nah, it is that one now. But yeah, there it is again. It's beautiful. It's the first hit, I think, with Hadel Snailfish. It's, and, and like you say, it's that little notch in the fin that gives it away that it's like this specific picture. A lesser known fact is that we've no idea what it is. We don't even know what genus it is, because it's, it's just completely different. Which I think is quite funny, because it's coming to become quite an iconic picture or, or silhouette, yep. and it's every time a snailfish is used, it's that, that's the picture it gets used, and it's, it's, we've no idea what it is. One of the most famous Hadel fish, we don't know what it is. Yeah, we've since videoed it. We still don't know what it is. Calling back to the last episode, it's um, we don't have a specimen, so we haven't formally mm. named it. Uh, but loads of footage of it, and it's there's a really good chance that's a new genus. There's some really weird structures on that animal. It's a little nick out the wing that I like, out the fin. It's like the old sort of map makers. They would hide a road or a certain city or town that didn't exist into their maps so that they could prove if somebody had copied them. And this little nick in the fin of this, you know, it shows it's, it's not just this animal. It's this specific picture that you took that turns up everywhere. And everyone always copies the nick as well. They don't mm, realise yeah. that it's... It's not. It's, it's not, not it's, symmetrical. It is damage. Yeah, it's not a morphological character. It's just something's bitten it, or it's torn it on something. But no, I love it. I think it's great. I love that picture. I remember. I actually remember downloading that off the camera on the day. I remember just looking through the photographs. And went, oh wow, that one's just just framed so nicely. She's really cool. Anyway, so it's a mad, crazy, soft-bodied bionic robot. It calls back to to the tech we were talking about. Rather than fighting the pressure, just becoming passive, just yeah, harmonising with it almost. That's what the animals do. So also in the last few weeks, uh, it's been quite it's been quite a few weeks for the old uh, Moon and Mars analogy as well. I mean, we, we touched on it last time, but I haven't really properly ranted about it for a while, and I feel it's time to, to bring that back to the surface again. Your blood pressure's been dropping. Yeah, yeah. I think I need to I need to I need to focus back on the Mars and the Moon and Mars analogy. So obviously our message is not getting out, but. You know, we spoke at great length about this and how the, the phrase is, we know more about the surface of the moon than we know about the deep sea. And I mean, that's actually quite insulting to lots and lots of people who spend a lot of time actually unpicking how the entire planet works. And it's a phrase that was, was first used 15 years before the moon landings. But for some reason, people just like it and perpetuate it. And 
But there you go. So, and it's even more offensive to geologists because it's kind of poking at them, telling them they haven't they haven't done enough. It's episode one. If you want to go back and get get the full rant, we we go into great detail on episode one. Every fine. If you detail. can forget the sound. Yes, that's before we had fancy mics. But I happened to catch the TV series Our Planet last week. And bearing in mind, this was two years after Blue Planet, and we spoke before about Blue Planet upgraded the analogy to the surface of Mars. So it's not a case of, you know less about the deep sea, you know about this tiny little floating moon. Now it's like you know less about your subject than Mars. But on our planet, it says we've been downgraded to the moon again. And this is two years later. So something's happened between 2017 and 2019 where the BBC and, and David Attenborough have decided to downgrade us back to knowing less about the moon. Or knowing less about the deep sea and the moon. I'm getting all confused again. But anyway, they're messing with our heads, I think. So there's no point talking about that analogy anymore, right? It's not going to go away. I think it's just here to stay. It's like a virus. But there's, there's, there's a few other things that are emerging. So if you go back and listen to the wording of, of things like Blue Planet and various other, any, if, let's be honest, any old deep sea documentary whatsoever, you might have picked up on this term being used and it's the midnight zone. Right, and this is something that's been just on the back burner for quite some time. Thinking, okay, one of these days I'm gonna have a look into this. It's brewing, and that day has come because cause it annoys me. I mean, I've certainly had various chats about what the midnight zone actually is and why is this suddenly becoming used in everyday descriptions of the deep sea. I remember when I watched this on TV the first time, and it said, "Now you're entering the midnight zone," and I was thinking, "Where have I heard that before?" You know, I've I've heard the midnight zone used before. And then it was like, ping, I know where that came from. It was Captain Barnacles from the kids' TV show Octonauts, right? This is like a happy-go-lucky polar bear in a captain's hat that leads a team of talking animals into marine environments to have adventures protecting other animals that have yet to evolve the ability to build their own sub and wear hats. That's the premise, really, for or the cartoon. Or put bandages on themselves. Yeah. You know, a lot of it seems to centre around putting bandages on things. But only the penguin can put bandages on. But he does do it really fast, in all fairness. He's good at it. Yeah. So I'm thinking, is, is the Midnight Zone, is that, is that something that's come from Octonauts? Or has the science community or whoever put that into Octonauts? Uh, as a sidetrack, I remember coming back from... Remember, remember we did that big Mariana Trench job in uh, 2014? Yes. I remember coming back from that. Almost the day I came back, the kids were watching the Mariana Trench special. I'm sitting there going, what? <laughs> it's like giant isopods in the bottom of the Mariana. No way. And they had like lava flung down it. So the kids were not that impressed by, by me just sitting ranting about it. Anyway, I started looking at this Midnight Zone reference. And if you refer to credible scientific sources, you'll quickly find that the Midnight Zone in biology is a term used in homology. And that refers to a similarity due to shared ancestry between a pair of DNA, RNA or protein sequences they're defined in terms of shared evolutionary ancestry across different species. You still with me? Yeah, that's not where I expected this to go. All right. But its significant similarity strongly suggests that two sequences are related by evolutionary changes deriving from a common ancestry, right? So the further back in time of the ancestor, the more difficult this is. And as such, close or recent relatives are said to be in the safe zone. Distant relatives are said to be in the twilight zone. And very, 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 very distant relatives are said to be in the midnight zone. So if the degree of similarity is less than 10%, those ancestors are what we call in the midnight zone. That's what it actually means in biology. But that's not what the cryptozoological wow. Captain Barnacles is talking about, is it? No, they went there. Yeah, they went down. They didn't go to less than 10% of DNA overlap. So <laughs> Yeah, so in, in that last explanation, you'll know I used the term twilight zone. Because that is also a phrase that is used quite a lot. And that nicely connects us to the source of the midnight zone in deep sea context. So categorising 
the ocean can be done in all manner of ways. It can be done by depth, or it can be done by large features like shelf slope rise, plains, trenches, or by sort of intermediate features like canyons and seamounts and vents and ridges, or by substrate, like rocky, silty, sandy, flat, steep, I don't know, whatever. But often light is just as important. It depends what the question is you're asking. So particularly with the midwater pelagic animals, and certainly the top 1,000 metres is, is, is potentially more important. So in broad terms, we have the sunlit zone in the surface, twilight zone, just where the light levels are drastically reduced. And then underneath that, there's basically no more light for the remainder. So technically, we used to, I don't know if we still do, I think I've read something that we're maybe shifting these lines, but generally speaking, you have the euphotic, 0 to 80 metres, the dysphotic, 80 to 200 metres, and the aphotic, which is all of the rest of the deep sea, which is most of planet Earth. And that's because there's no real usable, meaningful solar light available at any point. So the less technical term of twilight zone actually works here, because in this example, this is exactly what it means by definition. It's dim or diffused illumination. And it appears that the rise of the term midnight zone is people referring to the bathial zone, or the bathial zone if you're posh. Ooh. Yeah, I know. But it's derived from the Greek word for deep, which is bathys. So presumably, it's a slightly premature naming of the bathial zone after the Greek word for deep, because obviously they realised later they were much, much deeper places. So, you know, you ended up with Abyssal, and then you ended up with Hadal, and if we'd found them all at the same time, they probably should have been like shallow, kind of deep, really deep and proper deep. But unfortunately, we named the first one deep. Anyway, so a quick internet search of this newly popularised term midnight zone will throw back some really bold statements like biodiversity peaks in the midnight zone between the depths of 1,000 to 3,000 metres. Online definitions tend to follow wording like the bathial zone or bathypelagic, also known as the midnight zone, is part of the pelagic zone that extends from a depth of 1,000 metres to 4,000 metres. Okay, so the 1,000 metre mark seems to be fairly solid. Whether it's 3,000 or 4,000, doesn't really matter. Some of these things are so fluid. Anyway, so I did a deep dive to try and find the first mention of Midnight Zone on the internet in a deep sea context. The earliest mention I can find is actually straight from the polar bear's mouth. The captain. Yeah. The episode Octonauts in the Midnight Zone was broadcast on 27th of October 2010. I mean, I might be wrong, but that's, that's what I'm finding anyway. So then the question is, so what's wrong with referring to the depth zone underlying the twilight zone as the midnight zone? And this is where it just takes five minutes of thinking about it and suddenly you realise the whole thing is daft. So the twilight zone makes sense if you're looking for a less technical term to describe the diminishing of light with depth. However, the midnight zone is almost always referred to as the bathial zone. So if you use the equivalent definition of midnight, then twilight, i.e. dim or diffused illumination, we're looking at a period of intense darkness. So maybe that works, but then what do you call the seven to 8,000 metres deeper than that? If you've already at complete darkness in the top 30%, what's the rest of it? So claiming the bathial zone has been the midnight zone places the abyssal and hadal zones into early hours of the morning zone, or maybe time for a kebab in a taxi zone. How do, how do you get more darker, more darker than midnight? So historically, we've had to be creative in environmental nomenclature having perhaps been a bit overzealous in when we name stuff. For example, deep zones have been followed by the abyss and hail, or the giant squid then being superseded by colossal squid, or the giant amphipod being superseded by the super giant amphipod. So what happens if we find even bigger ones of these animals? So anyway, does that then mean we have to place the abyssal zone as the super midnight zone and the hail zone as a mega midnight zone? I don't know, but the physicists will tell you that photons from the sun will unlikely reach beyond a 1,000 metres, whereby they're already biologically useless. So therefore, the darkness of the midnight zone is consistent all the way to Challenger Deep, in terms of solar light anyway. 
So why is the midnight zone associated only with the second shallowest or second deepest, whatever you want to call it, biozone? The only thing likely to change is the biomass of bioluminescent organisms in the water column that decreases with depth, which in turn would make the midnight zone brighter than the super midnight zone, which in turn will be brighter than the mega midnight zone. It's almost as if Captain Barnacles hadn't fully thought this one through. So contemporary deep sea scientists are, however, not a bunch of made-up cartoon animals, and we do not have the luxury of top-quality ignorance to make up these good-for-nothing names for the sake of generating more exciting headlines and Facebook likes, at the expense of meaningful nomenclature. I'm just adopting the language of that paper from the last episode. Stop calling things stupid names, paper. What was it, the plea for modesty? A proposal for modesty. Yeah, I propose you all be more modest in your namings. I thought it was brilliant. Anyway, it all, I guess it all makes as much sense as a talking polar bear and a Johnny Captain's hat, but we are in a world where science fiction and science fact collide, and that's where the Octonauts is. I like a bit of Octonauts. You like, you like a bit of Octonauts, do you? Yeah, I mean, I've not watched it to death yet, but he's he's locked onto it. All right, I think if I ever see another episode, I'll probably just hurl something through the TV and try and strangle Captain Barnacles. Oh, I'm not murdering, I just want to put my hands around his neck for a bit. It's a polar bear. I kind of rate his chances. Well, if he, just, he just throws off the Johnny Captain's hat and just goes full polar bear on you. Well, you're basing it on the cartoon. I'm, I'm thinking about the real-life Captain Barnacle. <laughs> oh, the real-life polar bear that has an undersea adventures. Yeah, and the little jaunty hat. The photorealistic Captain Barnacles. So anyway, so well, <laughs> well, cryptozoology, which is the pseudoscience of proving the existence of monsters from folklore and myth, is constantly odd with scientific evidence. The whole time there was this unlikely cryptozoological menace of a polar bear barnacles hiding in plain sight, and he's even coining scientific nomenclature. He's making stuff up, so while we're bashing the cryptozoologists, they've actually infiltrated our wording in a weird modern way. My challenge for anyone listening to this is to try and find out whether or not it definitely was. I mean, I've had quite an extensive search and I can't find an earlier one than that. It's just one of these phrases that doesn't make any sense. It sounds great and it'll get you loads of hits on It's Twitter, romantic. It does sound great. Yeah. It is creeping into scientific literature. That's my that's my point here. It is getting in and it's, I think it's coming from barnacles. And the barnacles needs to be stopped. So anyway, to, to round that up though, in terms of sort of mythological made-up characters influencing what we think about the deep sea, that might be a subject we could talk about on the podcast. But it would only work if we knew a cryptozoologist or someone who knows about cryptozoology, not a cryptozoologist. Maybe that's the first question that we should ask them. Are you a cryptozoologist or are you a debunker of cryptozoology? Well, we've constantly tried to push back against the the deep sea monster, the stuff lurking down there kind of thing. It'd be great to actually not just poo-poo that, but like address it, Mm. actually see what these stories are based on, whether any of them hold water. We should be finding someone who knows about this stuff. So we're just going to harass someone out of the blue. Well, in case cool. some sonic it. tentacle comes out the phone and gets you by the head. So- <laughs> a sonic tentacle. That's another shirt. Yeah. That can be what we refer to the podcast as. Let us embrace you in our sonic tentacles. Yeah, that's it. So we need to embrace someone with our sonic tentacles. Who should we call? In fact, no, you know what, Tom? I've had enough. You, you, you just phoned someone. All right, yeah. Actually, if you go to the Yellow Pages, look under Cryptozoologist. Yeah, I've got it here. I'm here with Tyler Greenfield, a student of paleontology and uh, someone with a passionate interest in in cryptozoology. How are you doing, Tyler? Doing pretty good. How about you? I'm not bad. Thanks so much for coming on. And I've got to admit, I was totally sucked into the blog 
once I discovered it as well. And I actually realised we'd crossed paths organically on Twitter uh, before we were sort of introduced with this idea. So I'm guilty of perpetuating a myth. I used to say that we only know about Megalodon from teeth because of the cartilaginous skeleton. And I'm not sure if it was a tweet directly from you or a tweet from someone else just saying, you know, stop saying this, and then a link to your blog post about it. And so I, I, I totally held my hands up and like, yeah, yes, new information. This is brilliant. What One of the angles I try and push, and I think the philosophy you should have as a scientist is there's nothing better than being wrong because that means that there's a whole new thing to learn. Your preconceptions are off and you've got a new area to sort of discover. Can you talk us through that? Uh, Megalodon, of course, is is enjoying a bit of fame right now because of all those highly accurate films. <laughs> yeah, so there is a very common misconception that not only Megalodon, but extinct sharks in general, that we only know about them from their teeth. You'll see this kind of claim brought up all the time, whether it's in books, movies, even documentaries. They repeat this talking point all the, all the time that we don't know much about extinct sharks because we only have their teeth. And as someone who really likes sharks and studies them a lot, this is just an absurd claim. We have many, many species of extinct sharks that we have body fossils of. We have their skeletons. We have their soft tissues, their skin, their scales, their fins. Some are 100% complete. And Megalodon is no exception. We don't have any soft tissues from Megalodon, but we do have skeletal remains. We have vertebrae. We also do have some isolated scales. Um, from it. And then we have from close relatives, not Megalodon itself, but from close relatives, we do have the remains of the jaws, actually, not just the teeth. So we do actually know a great deal about what Megalodon would have looked like from these skeletal remains. We think it would have been pretty similar to what a great white looked like, although way bigger and probably bulkier since it was much larger. So it's it's very wrong to say that we don't know what it looked like because we do have a lot of good evidence, including that skeletal evidence. Oh, and another another part we do have that's possibly from Megalodon, but may also be from a relative, is actually the cartilage from the end of the nose. And it shows us that it probably had a very robust, blunt snout. Uh, they actually went misidentified for a long time. It was thought they belonged to poor beagle sharks, which are still alive today. So if you can imagine a poor beagle or, or a salmon shark, same genus, um, that's pretty much what a Megalodon his face would have looked like, um, although much, much larger. And so our, our sort of estimates of the of the size, that's that's fairly confident now. Yes. So back in the days before the skeletal material was really studied, talking like a hundred years ago, there were some insane estimates for megalodon size. We're talking between 80 and 120 feet long, which is massive. That's bigger than a blue whale at its biggest. And that's not the case. We don't think that anymore. Uh, based on refined methods of estimating size from the teeth and from the vertebra, we think between 50 and 60 feet is more likely. Although there may be bigger individuals that would be in like the 65 foot range. We're not 100% certain because there still are some flaws with the methodology. We don't have a complete skeleton. We just have partial remains. So there still is a little bit of uncertainty we can be fairly confident that it wasn't a hundred or more feet long, but it's still plenty big. It's, it's it's big enough for me. Do you find that the the old estimates, because they're more exciting, tend to be the ones that end up maybe in more popular culture or end up getting cited for a little extra excitement? Because we, whenever we see like a colossal and giant squid talked about in the media, 
they show them next to like a London bus and things like that. And it's it's this old estimate where the animal was much, much bigger. They favour that one because it looks more exciting. Like we've got a pretty good idea. We've got a lot of specimens now of both of those. And we've got a better idea of the size of it. It's still plenty big. Yeah, you are spot on. The bigger estimates are all over in popular culture. Even though they've been known to be false for 50 or more years, you'll still see whether it be the fake documentaries that Discovery Channel put out or the Meg, the recent movie, or any sort of books. Uh, a lot of cryptozoology stuff, too, will say that Megalodon was between 80 and 120 feet long because that that attracts people. That's it's a very romantic idea of what this shark would have been like. It was, of course, nowhere near that big, but but it sells, you know. Yeah, and you can cite... You can still cite a publication which adds validity to it. You can still cite a scientist who was like, oh, I've only got this piece and sort of guessing it might be around here. But then you can still say it's peer-reviewed literature, but you've selectively chosen the out-of-date yes. <laughs> piece of information. They do that. They're One of the older estimates of in sort of that 80 to 100 foot range comes from a reconstruction of the Jaws that was completed in 1908 or 1909. I can't remember which year um, at the American Museum of Natural History. And they, they calculated that absurd length from this reconstructed jaw. But the problem is they reconstructed the teeth completely wrong. They used just the very front anterior teeth and they put it throughout the entire jaw. So throughout the entire jaw, all the teeth are huge and are the, roughly the same size. So it just it led to this completely overblown estimate. And yet you still see people cite that as if it's reliable. It's a matter of kind of resolution. Like we've we've homed in, the error bars have got smaller. We've homed in on what's true as we've got more information and better techniques. No one was really wrong. We just got better and better and better until it, it became this narrow point of far more likelihood. But yeah, you can always pick that extreme error bar and get excited about that. Yeah, because back then, of course, they didn't have any, any computers. They couldn't do all the analyses that we can, can do today. The shark with the sort of whirl of teeth? Yes, Helicoprion. And all the different reconstructions of that? Yeah, there were a lot over the years, dozens and dozens. <laughs> all that could possibly be. And completely wrong, all of them. Yeah. Well, that's what I want to ask. I don't know where to begin to find what the current understanding is away from all of the sort of fun with where can we put the spiral of teeth. Yeah, so currently we think the spiral was in the lower jaw. And we know this because we actually have skull material from Helicoprion now. It was locked in a big block of rock and they had to CT scan it. So beforehand, they sort of just had to guess what it looked like. But now with the technology, we can really figure out how the skull was arranged and how the teeth fit into the lower jaw. So we can be pretty certain that the world fit in the lower jaw now. Now, of course, before CT scanning and before they even discovered that skull, it was just the world. So, and some people weren't even sure if, it, if they were teeth or not. So there are some reconstructions that have them as fin spines, sort of curling off the dorsal <laughs> fin or curling off the tail fin. Some of them have them on the upper jaw. Some of them have one or more whorls, even though we know they only now had one. It's pretty much any variation you can imagine. It probably functioned as sort of a saw, and they would rub up against the upper teeth in the upper jaw and sort of cut prey in half. We think it probably ate cephalopods and small fishes, so it would get them in the mouth, get them in between the whorl and the teeth in the upper jaw, and then slice them in between. You touched on the Discovery 
channel mockumentaries. Oh, and this wasn't <laughs> this wasn't initially in my in my notes, but then you you said like a trigger word, and my knuckles went pale. <laughs> um, so the one that crosses our path a lot is the is the mermaids one. Is the oh, yes, mermaids yes. or body found? I'll sort of share my my little piece, and I think you're probably on the same the same level as me. I found that the most damaging and irresponsible act by a supposedly educational channel that I could I could imagine because it was deliberately misleading it wasn't a what if fun it wasn't you know war of the worlds stop panicking folks it's all it's all just a play it was very deliberately misleading the disclaimer was very very small people were acting as real scientists and real authority they had their fun they got their ratings but it's us who still now, years later, are getting the emails and the conspiracy theories and uh, you're lying about what's down there, you're hiding it from us. You know, no matter how much I try and tell people about the deep sea and what's going on and what we know and what we don't know and try and push back against that, that was just, I just, I'm staggered by it. It was so, so irresponsible. I feel exactly the same way. Damaging and irresponsible are the two perfect words that I would also used to describe them. I mean, the Megalodon one single-handedly revived the idea that Megalodon is still out there. Beforehand, the interest had kind of died off, but as soon as those documentaries, not really documentaries, fake documentaries, came out, it skyrocketed. And now people get asked about it all the time. Scientists continually get questions about, is Megalodon still out there? The answer is, of course, no. But a lot of people don't like to hear that answer. Yeah, because it was entertainment, because it was fun. <laughs> it's even worse that they doubled down. They put out the first one in 2013, and then they made a follow-up in 2014 and tried to reiterate that this was all real. And we're still dealing with the fallout, and we're still having noise in the signal, basically, created by this thing. You know, I'm trying to get this podcast out there, and I'm doing YouTube and all sorts of other stuff, and it's... Yeah, it's a quagmire now of this deliberate misinformation for fun. And you can you can do that. You can do a what if. You can do a like, oh, maybe it is, and, and have a bit of a ghost hunters and play around with it. But don't put on the mask of science. Don't get actors to pretend to be scientists from respected institutions that then lie to people. You know, I, I, I can't dress up as a police officer and pull people over. I can't put on military uniform and try and get <laughs> discounts. People are outraged at that. And rightly so. So don't don't pretend to be someone who's an expert, and then yeah, just just flood the system with noise. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Discovery Channel continues to put out fake documentaries. I mean, most of the ones they've put out at Shark Week the past few years, even though they're not related to Megalodon, they've been completely faked about giant hammerheads or giant great whites, and they're not real. They're just completely made up stories that are being promoted as a real product. And that's probably even more damaging because that seems a bit more believable and more real, but it's not. It's completely fake. I think I wanted to ask you about is you are you are really even handed how you look into your sort of cryptid work. You're not totally a debunker. You get the primary sources and you look at the sort of likelihood of things. And when we first had a chat, you said something really interesting that sounded really familiar. It was it was like what we had with the with the deepest fish. There were all these reports of snailfish in the Hadal trenches at sort of seven, eight thousand meters, going right back to the 1950s. But there was a few reports of much, much deeper fish, but singular reports. They drowned out 
what was building in the evidence, what was building as like, no, this is consistent, this probably is is a real thing. Are you seeing sort of more charismatic, more extreme cryptids drowning out what might actually be real species that have gone gone sort of unnoticed? Yes, see it all the time. Like things like the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot or the Yeti have already become so ingrained in pop culture that there's really no way to fight against them and, and get the more obscure but more believable possible unknown species out there because you're just fighting an, an endless tide of more, I guess, more interesting to the public, romantic, more sexy even, cryptids and monsters. They definitely do overtake the more reliable accounts, the more believable accounts. Those get pushed to the wayside, while the more extraordinary and more unbelievable stories are the ones that you hear about all the time. Of, of all the extinct sharks, why is it the biggest one we know exactly, about? Exactly, exactly my <laughs> it's point. It's because the most exciting one. And, and I, I guarantee, like the colossal squid, if they found a bigger one, then it's maybe that survived. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you don't hear about any obscure shark species supposedly coming back from the dead. There's no helicoprion sightings. There's no helicoprion Discovery Channel fake documentary. And it's so distinctive. And it's very distinctive. <laughs> if somebody were to say an account about it, there'd be a lot of people that would believe it because it's it's a more obscure and very, very distinctive looking animal. Do you have like a top three? Do you have like a, a, a list of cryptids you think are really, really quite likely based on your primary research? Unfortunately, my list is very small. And I don't even know if I'd have a top. <laughs> that probably means it's accurate. A top three. <laughs> I really just have a top one set of cryptids. So you, you might be familiar with William Beebe and his bathysphere. Very, very famous marine explorer and event in the history of, of deep sea exploration. What many people don't know is that during some of these dives in the early 30s, is that he saw up to five species of fish that were at the time unknown and have not been seen since his dives. And the, these would be the ones that I'd put in the top spot. So one of them was a giant dragon fish. He called it the untouchable bathysphere fish. He even gave it a scientific name, Bathysphera intacta. And it was supposedly six feet long. Now, I don't really think it was that long. I think he was probably misestimating. I mean, he was looking through a small porthole with only a little spotlight shining at it and no way to tell distance. But the features it has, the certain uh, bioluminescent spots that it has on the body and certain colors are different from any other dragonfish. And it seems believable enough to me that it could have been a real unknown species. But unfortunately, it hasn't been seen since or caught since. Now, there were other fish that he cited too. They're not quite as interesting, and I'm a bit unsure of their validity. Uh, one is one he called the five-lined constellation fish. And according to him, it looks sort of like a butterfly fish or an angel fish, sort of a shallow water reef fish except it had five rows of bioluminescent spots on it. This one I'm really unsure about, because it sounds to me like a shallow water fish in a place that it doesn't belong. And then there's even the idea that it may have been a misidentified comb jelly, which seems more likely to me. Another one he cited was an angler fish, except that it had three lures on its head instead of one. They sort of branched off. This one also seems semi-believable to me. But again, it would have been pretty small, very dark colored. I am also skeptical of that one. There were two others he cited, a possible new species of whalefish. One of the oddest ones is one that he called the abyssal rainbow gar. 
It doesn't really look like a gar. It looks more like a snipe eel, but I guess BB thought it looked like a gar. It was supposedly divided into three different colors. One part of it was red, one part of it was yellow, and the other part of it was blue. This one I'm very, very skeptical of. Maybe iridescence? Reflection from his spotlight on the bathysphere being different colors. I'm a bit worried about his nitrogen mix. That too. (laughs) Possible (laughs) hallucinations. His co-pilot, Otis Barton, apparently did not see any of these fish. Um, When he wrote his account in a different book later after BB, he said that he never saw any of these five unknown species. Now, that could be because he didn't actually see them or because he had a falling out with BB and didn't want to give him any sort of credit. So I'm also unsure of of Otis Barton's testimony. The other possibility is they are now known and described, but a trawled up specimen in a in an ethanol jar is very different from his his quite emotional response at the time. I've read some of his bits and he's he's very very excited yes. and, and these <laughs> names, unfortunately, as as charismatic as they are, they don't do his credibility a great deal of favor because they're so you know it's the it's the jaguar shark, the fantastical beast that he's seeing. But I, I've got to see his um, bathy sphere, actually. Really? Yeah, it's in a maritime museum in Bermuda. Oh, that's where his dives were, so that makes sense. Yeah, a load of his stuff is there, and I saw the, the early videos and the failed attempts where they were just testing it, and it, it flooded. and Yeah, then blew the door off, yeah. Yeah, and then he gets in it. <laughs> yeah. Guts of steel to be able to do what they did, to climb in a small metal sphere and descend 3,000 feet into the ocean. They paved the way. They were pioneers, and what they did was pretty amazing. I know BB's got a a book that's pretty good. Yes, it's called The Half Mile Down from 1934. And that contains the accounts of his five unknown species. Uh, He did not have photographs of them. They could not really take quality photographs in the bathysphere at that time. He did have drawings made of all these fishes by his artist, Elsie Bostelman was her name. And she was a very, very talented painter. She produced these striking paintings, not only of his unknown species, but any of the species he encountered during his bathysphere dives. And they're on a stark black background. And then it's the fish front and center. Really, really striking images. I'm really the first of their kind. Previously, deep sea fish hadn't really been portrayed this way. Usually they were portrayed in lit environments. And they were drawn from dead specimens, of course, because that's all they had at the time. They did propel his unknown species into pop culture. You can find a lot of older books and book covers, you know, illustrations that have his unknown species in them. Because Elsie Bosselman's drawings were so convincing that people thought they were known from better material than just anecdotal accounts. That leads on quite nicely, actually. Uh, Paleo art memes and the sort of how an artist's reconstruction can then influence and, and radiate. I do a little bit of taxonomic illustration as well. And because of having a little bit of an art background, I have to fight with, draw what's really there, even if it looks goofy, even if it makes a bad picture. And I'm fighting the aesthetic side of myself and the sort of more artistic side to, this would look so much nicer if that was a little bit thicker and that wasn't there. And it's it's, no, you've got to absolutely draw what was there. And if it looks cross-eyed and angry and goofy, unfortunately, that's just how the fish looks. Yep. (laughs) I'm wondering if, certainly with the paleontology reconstructions and maybe even edging into the cryptids, there's a little bit of poetic license with making it that cool image, the one that's going to be repeated in Pop's eye and and sort of get more media attention. And then that style influences others and it sort of radiates out. It's not even that original mistake or that original exaggeration that then becomes known of these animals. It happens all the time in paleo art. 
And a lot of people would like to think that it doesn't happen anymore. There are a lot of paleo artists who think that we've gone past the point of having paleo art memes, but we certainly have not because somebody is always going to make a reconstruction that while not the most accurate and containing errors is very attractive and people want to copy it endlessly and post it endlessly. And that just perpetuates the meme further and further. And I think science art in general, we tend to gravitate towards the extraordinary or the monstrous even, and not towards the realistic or naturalistic. I have written quite a few posts about counteracting paleo art memes. Um, They're especially bad for fish and for cephalopods from the fossil record. And that's what I've dedicated most of my time to, to counteracting. Mainly cartilaginous fishes, sharks and rays. And then I, I really like cephalopods as well. And they are by far the most poorly represented in, in paleo art. Most reconstructions, I just look at and have to groan a little bit because they're completely off the mark from what we know from the published literature, from the fossils, from any reliable sources of information we have. And then that those illustrations are then essentially part of the primary literature. People start with that image to then look at this related species and like, oh, well, mine's a little bit longer and a little bit wider here. And they almost morph that original interpretation. And so, yeah, it's a meme. It becomes fixed that this thing looked like this. Yeah, and that's how they did it in the early days. Getting back to the the primary material and the fossils themselves, reading your blog, I learned a great deal. When removing a mineralized matrix from around the bones themselves and deciding what is preserved skin and a preserved imprint and what is just decay and mineralization around the bone and needs to be cleared off. Do you think our old preconceptions about prehistoric animals, you know, dinosaurs being scaly, do you think maybe 50 years ago, a lot of feathers were cleaned off specimens assumed to just be mud? Yes, absolutely. Uh, There was a case of this almost happening. A little theropod predatory dinosaur uh, called Ornithomimus, uh, found in Canada in the early 1900s. And they'd prepped away most of the matrix, but there were these curious dark little stains on the upper arm that were sort of line shaped and they went across the upper arm. And for a long time, they had no idea what they were. Fortunately, they did not remove them. Well, then they use modern technology to chemically analyze them. And it turns out they're carbonized feather traces. So I can imagine that many other dinosaurs may have had faint, faint traces of feathers that were completely removed. And skin is even worse. A lot of times they knew the skin was there, but they would remove it because they wanted to mount the skeletons. And you can't mount a skeleton if it's got a huge block of rock on top of it. The first dinosaur mummy ever discovered, um, an Edmontosaurus, which is one of the duck-billed dinosaurs, uh, was found in 1882, I think, in South Dakota. And they knew it had skin on it, and they even documented some of it, but they removed most of the skin to get to the bones. According to the field workers, originally, it was almost entirely covered in skin. And because that was the, that was the methodology, like with, with CT scanning now, we can be shocked at that, but that, that was essentially how they got the material to work with. That was part of the process. You make a little note of what's there and then you get to the skeleton. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the things that have been lost because of less careful techniques, you know, 100 years ago. We've probably lost a, a lot of soft tissue information not just for dinosaurs, but for any other animal from the fossil record. Yeah, my, my, I feel like a lot of science is, is trying to remove as much of yourself as possible and see things as they really are. So with your sort of crypto work, why do we choose to ignore the evidence when it's fun? The big ones that keep coming back up, 
Globsters, which like I used to really love these books when I was a kid. So that's why I've like internalized a lot of these things. And I'm I'm realizing now, looking back, that they cut out the bits that would spoil the fun. You know, mm -hmm. that it was always like, and scientists took a tissue sample, and it's like, and then what? This is an account from the 1950s. Like this book was published in 97. Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> it led to the the theories of the giant octopus. Basically, it was a big gelatinous mass, heavily decomposed. Uh, a couple were trawled up, a couple washed up, and they really were enormous. And there's a couple of nice papers I'll link to in the description of this episode of that very genetic analysis that revealed that it would. they tended to be sperm whales, didn't they? They tended to be the the sort of melon and head structure from a sperm whale. Yeah, the giant octopus uh, that supposedly washed up in Florida in the 1890s was the one that turned out to be whale blubber. A lot of other globsters have turned out to be whales, and then a lot of other ones have turned out to be basking sharks. Basking sharks are a, sort of be, have become an infamous culprit for globsters. And then pretty much any globster you see, you can bet that it's either a whale or a basking shark. Like every month there's another globster. Like, yep, that's a whale. Yep, that's a basking shark. Yeah. And it's not anything interesting. And I can identify it right away because I've seen uh, a thousand of them. And, you know, scientists baffled, or, you know, if it's a really good piece, boffins baffled. I always <laughs> love that. When you're called a boffin, you know which side they're on. And then in the text, in the actual text, is how quickly a marine biologist turned up and told them what it was. The headline and the image of what carries through. It's basically decomposition. Certain animals decomposing really mess with our brains. So have you seen the how basking sharks really, really become a plesiosaur yes. very quickly? It's amazing how deceptively they can look like a, a plesiosaur or some sort of prehistoric marine reptile, just a little bit of decomposition. The jaws fall off, some of the fins fall off, and you've got a, you've got a plesiosaur. But yeah, basically, if you can visualize it, a basking shark, that huge open filter-feeding mouth, that's not very structurally strong, so that's one of the first places to decompose. And they've got a so tiny little skull at the end of a yeah. pretty long vertebral column, and that turns into a neck and a head. Erase out that massive filter-feeding jaw. It's, a, it's Nessie, it's a plesiosaur. Yeah, there, there's a, a very famous case of this happening with a basking shark. In 1977, I think, a Japanese trawler pulled one up from off the coast of New Zealand, the Zuyomaru. I'm, I'm terrible at pronunciation, but that was the name of the ship. And it, of course, all the news articles and cryptozoology books and even creationist literature, even to this day, still claim that it was a plesiosaur. But if you know basking shark anatomy... And you've actually read the papers that were published about the anatomy and about even the chemistry of this specimen that clearly show that it was a basking shark, and especially a decayed one. It is so obviously a basking shark. But like I said, in the cryptozoological literature and creationists especially, this is still consistently cited as being a plesiosaur. It comes up against entertainment. And that it's fascinating. I hadn't thought about young earth and creationist viewpoint. It frequently overlaps with cryptozoology. It's become more noticeable in, in recent decades. Cryptozoology, when it began at the middle of the century, I mean, there were some pretty serious names attached. Cryptozoological papers were published in Nature, and, and there were plenty of scientists who took it seriously. But as those older scientists have died, and the community has shifted a lot away from the more scientific angle, and more towards the young earth creationist angle, or even the paranormal, or extraterrestrial. And I'm not saying that it was great to begin with, but it has only gotten worse as time has gone on. How do you actually define 
cryptozoology. I'm having a bit of a moment here as I'm realizing I was talking to you about I've taken photos of animals that I know are unique, but we don't have a specimen, so I can't describe it. And I'm realizing how familiar that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like a, like a Bigfoot story, but it's completely different because one is is a huge creation of pop culture that has been claimed to be cited for years, yet no definitive evidence has ever been put forward. And the other is is a small fish that, I mean, not very many people would know or care about. So, you know, obviously that's more believable. But when it boils down to the basic facts, they're very similar. It's certainly not made me rich and famous. <laughs> no, not as rich and famous as, as running the Bigfoot or Loch Ness Monster circuits will make you. Cryptozoology as a whole. Oftentimes it is perceived as a pseudoscience. And oftentimes in practice it is a pseudoscience. But I don't think it is inherently a pseudoscience. And I'm in very small company in that opinion. But I can come at it from a paleontological and, and biological angle. There are some things of value to be studied here. And also, too, from a historical and, and sociological angle, it's worth writing down the history of this field, even if it isn't exactly accurate or true. On that point, it is very hard to define exactly what cryptozoology is. The textbook definition is just the study of unknown animals. But that's not... Which is what I do. That's, that's very <laughs> basic. And it doesn't distinguish between like what you do what you're doing is is very scientific. What they're doing is is not <laughs> at all. And yet they would be lumped under cryptozoology if we're using a very broad definition. I would like to have cryptozoology be known as a more serious study, whether that's actual unknown species or just the history of what people used to think in this field and looking through the literature and compiling bibliographies. I don't think that what a lot of cryptozoology has become today should really be considered cryptozoology. Some people have proposed sort of an informal term for that. They call it para-cryptozoology. I think that's a bit of a mouthful. Cryptozoology is already long enough. So I think we do need to narrow our definitions a little bit. I think maybe at its core, being ready to be wrong and trying to remove yourself and see what's really there, I think that's maybe what separates the two. It's it's being ready to kill your darlings. Yes, hesitant to jump to conclusions right away, not being so quick to say it's, it's Bigfoot, it's the Loch Ness Monster. As much as mainstream scientists would not like what I do, those kind of cryptozoologists would hate what I do even more. Because a lot of what I do <laughs> is showing, is stepping back for a moment and saying, you know what, that's actually not a really good account to be using as a source. And I've come across them occasionally, and they're not the nicest a lot of times. Tyler, thank you so much for talking with me. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. Oh yeah, no problem. I, I thank you for having me again. It was I was very surprised to be invited, especially with some <laughs> of the previous guests you've had. Would you would you be up for being sort of on hand if we come across anything interesting? Oh, for sure. A, I would be yeah, glad a, to be a recurring in the wings. <laughs> recurring guest. <laughs> oh, that's great. We will we will definitely call on you in the future. I used to love the old paranormal books in my school library when I was a kid and I was always drawn to the the cryptozoology section but Tyler's work really reveals that those stories are often true but they're very they're very selective they're not the whole truth um, they cherry pick or they stop the story and omit details that sort of leave it hanging leave it open results come back and they're sperm whales and they're basking sharks but that's no fun so you you end the story with the scientist being baffled. You end the story with the scientist saying, oh, well, this is so decomposed, I can't tell what this is. I'll run some tests, with the mystery being unsolved. 
Tyler was actually quite worried about sort of giving an interview. He hadn't done that before. I think he interviews really well. Uh, his blog is fantastic. I'm definitely going to include a link to that. Uh, he also mentioned that he maintains an archive of a lot of the papers based on cryptozoology. And they're a really good read. I did a few of those for, for research. The the results of the blobsters and the results of the so-called plesiosaur that was washed up. You finally get those conclusions. You know, if you've heard these stories, if you were like me and you read all these books as a kid, you finally get the whodunits. You get, you get the last chapter. He also has a, uh, a link to Bibi's book, Half a Mile Down. I was aware of it and I'd seen some of his illustrations, but I'm reading it right now and it's it's a really lovely book. Uh, and I'm kind of rooting for him. I, I think uh, some of those fish descriptions were maybe a little bit sensationalised, but I like his passion. He won me over. We didn't get a chance to touch on all of the sort of most common mysteries. And one of the ones that that I keep getting as a, as a deep sea biologist is the bloop. There was this very loud sound off South America uh, in 1997. It was heard from over 5,000 kilometres away. It's an odd one. It's an odd one. It's, it's very, very loud. It's picked up on, on multiple uh, sensors that were actually, I think they were old Cold War submarine sensors that were then sort of repurposed by NOAA to listen to uh, earthquakes and seismic events and also marine mammals and things like that. So it's picked up on those. It's difficult to listen to as, as a human, basically. It's, it's infrasound. It's really, really low sound beyond our hearing. So you usually hear it sped up 16 times and of course that pitches it up as well and then it it sounds like a bloop it, it sounds like this and using my very mediocre podcast editing skills so removing some of that noise this is it sort of isolated a little bit more but it's still at that 16 speed it's still much quicker than it actually happened in order to allow us to hear it this probably isn't the best way of doing it. I upped the pitch by uh, 400%, and it still sounds a little bit strange, but but try and realise that this is this is higher pitch than it should be, but here is how it sounds at, at, at real speed. Now, to me, that's that doesn't sound biological. That sounds too messy, too disorganized. It, it it really, really sounds like two things sort of rubbing past each other. A physical sound, if that makes sense. Uh, and that stands with the the best theory that we have so far is that it it's actually ice carving or ice flows rubbing past each other. It's a, it's a seismic event rather than a biological event. But I'm not just going to stop there, um, just because. I think that's a sensible explanation. So I called upon, well, the best person I know to talk about the sound of marine mammals and the sound of animals in the ocean, uh, Nikki from Seish. Hello. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to have an excuse to have a chat. We sort of go way back working offshore together in the early days. And I can remember your claim to fame was always you knew all the marine mammals off Aberdeen by name. <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> yes, I had spent a lot of time working with uh, with the well, bottlenose dolphins up there at the time, wasn't it? So yes, spent a lot of years there. First name basis with these animals. So uh, yeah, obviously very... <laughs> Definitely a claim to fame. Absolutely. But yeah, no, it's been a long time, isn't it? So um, I think we did our first offshore trip together, Tom, didn't we? 
We did. We did. We formed a little cohort that binge watched 24. Ah, uh, yes. You were um, a big, yeah, you tried to distract me from watching Marine Mammals, if I remember correctly, to make me watch 24 instead. <laughs> and cheer on Jack uh, and, Bauer and, instead of doing my job, yes. <laughs> immediately, we're on to my complete lack of professionalism <laughs> and bad influence on others. Exactly. It's a, it's a running theme. Just a bunch of recent graduates going away to see. <laughs> That's good fun. So you specialise in mitigation. You work within industry and you, you specialise in mitigation against sort of harm to, to marine mammals. And one of your main tools in that is, is PAMS, is Passive Acoustic Monitoring. Yes, yes. Um, so uh, yeah, we do. Um, we specialize in underwater acoustics, and uh, we've spent a lot of time using uh, different types of technology, different types of hydrophones to really understand how sound works in the marine environment and how we can use it to monitor you know, a whole range of species. And uh, my passion is definitely marine mammals. So we're very much uh, looking at ways of trying to understand movements of marine mammals and trying to ensure that uh, offshore development, because you know we're, we're developing the offshore environment and using it for harnessing energy, for example, a lot more. So we use that to make sure that marine mammals are protected as much as we can and we're having as, as little impact on them as possible. One of the best ways of monitoring them is, is listening for their calls. I can remember when we used to have to spot them visually, it's it's difficult, you know. Some of these animals are, are only reaching the surface to catch a breath and they're not really doing any spectacular leaping or anything like that. And it's far easier to, to listen for... And, and you can ID to sort of species and even what behaviour they're up to based on the sound, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many, of the, so many animals spend, you know, the majority of their time underwater. So it's really important to be able to, to detect them when they're not at the surface. And it gives us a really good idea of, of movement of, of marine mammals. And we've learned so much about patterns of marine mammals. We can identify, you know, diff using different behaviours where they're migrating, when they're um, breeding. Our, our knowledge of marine mammals has really excelled using acoustics. So it's a, it's a really important tool. What better person to play the bloop to who's very, very familiar with, with calls and communication of, well, the largest uh, marine animals? What was your your gut take on it i think uh i think sadly it's it's quite explainable i think it's interesting how how it's often played is sped up 16 times so that we can actually hear it the, the original sound is beyond human hearing yeah absolutely i mean it's the signal is very ultra low frequency so it's completely inaudible to a to a human ear and you know there are a number of species marine mammal species that are are inaudible you know a lot of their vocalizations you know particularly the larger whales like your blue whales and your fin whales they are very low frequency um, species and you know we can't even hear them audibly for a lot of their vocalizations so when we're recording their vocalizations we have to speed those up and um, the difference with this one is it was the amplitude really which is quite significant and I think if it was an you know if they decided it was an animal would actually be beyond enormous with blue whales for example I mean they still can be recorded at 180 decibels which is on par with a with a jumbo jet taking off but this would be completely off that scale as well it would have been very illogical to think that we wouldn't have found it again or detected it again. It would be very hard to miss. Also, it's it's not very chatty. It's never spoken <laughs> sort of before or since. And we're putting so many more listening devices into the ocean to listen for seismic events, which is what these were actually originally for, lots of military defence. And again, teams like yours out actually listening for the vocalisation of, of marine life. We wouldn't miss it. Sadly so. But uh, it makes a really good story though. I think because of the location of where it was, I think there was a lot of interest in it because near a, a sunken city of Raleigh, some mythical story that uh, some mystical beast had been imprisoned there. And I think that really got people catching on to, for this story to kind of grow legs. Yeah, and, and let's ignore the fact that, to me at least, once once we'd 
we'd got the sound into a place where we we could hear it and at the correct speed it it's it so sounds like ice rubbing past itself you know it's a it's it's the irregularity of it which which stops me feeling like it's biological it's too it's too much of a messy sound it's too yeah just sounds like things colliding exactly and i mean they've compared that sound now to a lot of different um detections and and recordings of 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 ice cracking and it's uh an ice carving it's uh it's clearly that i mean the issue you've got with sound is uh is quite a dark art uh when you're analyzing it and uh, i'm certainly no acoustician but from what i understand when sound propagates you know particularly over large distances like this that we're talking about i mean the signals can change quite dramatically so you're never going to get two ice carving signatures to be exactly the same because of the location i mean we know that in that area of the south pacific that ice cracking is a dominant sound in the southern ocean i think it's a mystery we might have to put to bed tom (laughs) right well i've got you then there's lots else that marine mammals are to blame for (laughs) Uh, so i'm just going to list off you know all my gripes why do they smell so bad when they're dead oh they smell horrific don't they The carcasses are often portrayed as unknown sea creatures and a decomposed whale, it doesn't look like a whale anymore. They're rounded and sort of streamlined and covered in blubber and and cute animals that we like. But what they're really hiding underneath all that is this weird bear dog thing that they evolved (laughs) from. (laughs) And, And as all that is stripped away, it reveals flippers that look like giant hands and it reveals the very sort of canine predatory skull and and the other weird thing I, I learned about is they they often look hairy and apparently it's the collagen they're mammals there's collagen mm. in the skin and in the fat tissue to hold it together and as the the rest of the soft parts decay away it looks like hair so it looks like this hairy dragon-like beast it is difficult because often when you when you do find some of these animals particularly if they've, they've been dead in the water you know if they've died at sea and then they've been washed ashore where they've uh, you know they've become bloated they've inflated with gas the the more decomposed ones are are very difficult but the there is maybe a group worthy of monster we were chatting a little bit about the origin of the name of the orcas and uh, yes. uh, some recent monstrous behavior killer whales have always really kind of captured my interest so its latin name is orcinus orca which is literally translated to um from the realms of the dead or from the kingdom of the dead. More recently, there's been some um, interesting behaviours noted off the coast of Spain and Portugal where individuals, you know, it's not even just the population, but certain individuals have been um, recorded uh, harassing and literally attacking vessels and, and small small pleasure craft. It's quite an exciting Obviously, I wasn't someone on the boat, so it's more exciting for me watching from a distance because my <laughs> my life wasn't at threat. But um, you know, there's been a lot of scientists working out in Spain and Portugal to kind of try and understand, you know, where this is coming from. There's been some claims that is it like revenge from maybe some of these animals had had some vessel strike um, injuries. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to see see how that one plays out. But again, that's another one that's you know you can look at news articles and it's killer whales attack hunt humans and yeah. you know looking to you know, kill us all. But it's definitely an interesting behaviour, though. And it's always exciting for scientists to experience something new and see something new in the wild. Yeah. And, and it's not a discovery in the sense that we've we've learned something that they always did. They're such complex and intelligent animals. This is a new and learned behaviour. And, you know, we, we probably have a hand in it. This is probably has an origin. Yeah. But I mean, they've been around a lot longer than we have. And, uh, you know, we're, we're the ones that are doing the changing. So it's, it's, it's a shame it has to be them that adapt. <laughs> and uh, I was after a Tales from the High Sea and you had an interesting one that was, it was a vessel you were working on. So it was relayed to you, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't you firsthand. Yeah, no, sadly, I would love to be able to claim the story. It was a good one. I might just dive in. This is a bit of nature, red in tooth and claw. 
yeah, you probably don't want to be listening to this over your over your tea, but um, being out there and seeing wildlife and in action and actually in its natural habitat is a real privilege. And, uh, you know, so I've been lucky to work on a number of uh, whale watching boats. But one of the stories definitely gave our punters a, a different take. There was a it was a catamaran. So we were, they were out looking for um, common dolphins primarily and uh, and bottlenose dolphins. You have dolphins that are bow riding and everyone's up the front of the vessel. And it, they had a really a full boat, children, you know, everyone having a lovely day out. And then all of a sudden there was a rush of waves beneath the vessel. Um, so a catamaran obviously has two hulls and there was a gap in the middle and um, some orca had uh, been using the vessel, but basically a way to kind of stealthily creep up on these poor unsuspecting dolphins that were bow riding and having the time of their lives. And then all of a sudden there was a, a big rush of water and uh, one poor dolphin got popped in two by a, an orca that just popped out and um, decided to have a little snack. But this animal just apparently just effectively just kind of exploded in front of them. And it was a bit of a first-hand experience of uh, hunting in action. And uh, I don't think all the uh, the public were <laughs> particularly as excited yeah. as some of the scientists on board. Because as scientists, we get quite excited about seeing this stuff. You know, this is a once in a lifetime thing. And, you know, you know, this is what happens in the wild. And and luckily, plastic ponchos are, are handed out before going out there. But <laughs> yeah. I, I remember you, you saying that the the front row was sprayed. Yeah, there were, there were, <laughs> yes, there were some bits. So, you know, baby wipes were handed out as they got off the vessel. And <laughs> this is, you know, the natural environment. And, uh, you know, these things happen all the time. But yeah, sadly, I was not on that vessel that day. But it was, um, you know, it's a story that we, you know, we tell a lot because I think it's important that people realise what, what actually happens in the wild. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great to have you on and sort of showcase science careers as well. It's not just academia. You know, you can still be a, a highly trained scientist and you can apply that knowledge and your scientific skills to industry like industry like you do. And you're working at the front line and you're we accept that we, we can't stop these things and we even need them. We, we, we can't use the Internet and then not want cables to be laid. We're, we're all part of it. You can then work within industry to, to make sure things work as best they could and to, to uphold the, the environmental legislation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, industry is is a big part. I mean, you know, when I first got into industry, you know, you have that wrestle where I was, you know, I came in as a pure conservationist, you know, I was had a had a love of, of marine mammals and, you know, wanted to protect them at all costs. Uh, you know, we need energy, to, you know, that's improving. I mean, we're making quite a significant move from from oil and gas uh, reliance into to renewables, which is fabulous, but renewables still do have an impact on the marine environment. But we have to be be aware of those impacts and, and, and understand them. But, uh, you know, I just hope we can do the best we can to, to minimize the impacts while continuing to live as we want to. Well, I'm really grateful that we've got a uh... We've got folks out there like you guys who are uh, scanning the horizon and keeping an eye on things and making sure the things we accept we need to do and that are the best, the best thing we could be doing are done with absolutely the minimal, the minimal impact on these animals. And that really about understanding these animals, your, your, your training as a biologist really comes to play in how you interact with and mitigate industry, which is fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad there's, uh, there's folk on the front line fighting the good fight. Oh, well, we can't do it with all, without all the bits, really. I mean, we need the science as well to um, to inform the decisions and to know, you know, the best information. But yeah, there's um, there's definitely a lot of different avenues to be in there kind of protecting the, the environment. There's, you know, obviously from research through to being involved in industry and, and also in, in, in public awareness as well. So, you know, people who are out there promoting, getting the word out there as well. So it's it's all critical. Thanks so much for for coming on and having a chat, Nikki. That was that was really useful. No, thanks for asking me. I've uh, I've been listening keenly for the last few episodes. So um, no, it's it's a it's, it's a great why podcast. I, targeted you. I know. <laughs> I should, ne- should never comment <laughs> because I'll be coming for you. No, it's, it's been fun. Hello, 
I'm oceanographer Don Walsh, and I'd like to give you some of my thoughts on myths and realities in the ocean. Basically, behind every myth, there is usually some truth. In 1998, marine geologists Walt Pittman and Bill Ryan published a book called Noah's Flood, a wonderful scientific detective story. Basically, it analyzed the Old Testament book of Genesis, the story of the great flood that covered the earth. And according to the book of Genesis, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights or more, depending on which account you believe in. However, Pittman and Ryan found evidence of a great flood about 7,000 years ago around the shorelines of the Black Sea. The onset was generally gradual, so there was time to move inland in this early evidence of the consequences of sea level rise. Since I'm a sailor and we are a superstitious bunch, here are some ocean-related myths that you might consider or you might find interesting. First, let's talk about Charybdis and Scylla. These were mythological ancient Greek monsters that guarded the two-mile-wide Strait of Messina. The monsters were reported to have lured sailors to their deaths. This was the legend. And now, today, Charybdis is used as a generic term for a sea surface whirlpool or vortex. Another word used for these whirlpools is maelstrom. The best known is in Norway's coastal Lofoten Island. In 1841, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a short story called A Descent into the Maelstrom. And that was the first time the word, the Nordic word maelstrom was used to describe a particular sea surface vortex. Today, it's more generic in describing any type of whirlpool or vortex areas that may be found throughout the world ocean. Acherybdis or maelstrom certainly can indeed swallow humans in small boats. In one test, a mannequin with a life jacket and depth gauge on board was launched into one. When recovered a considerable distance away, it had gone to a depth of 860 feet. A good example of cryptozoology is the Loch Ness Monster. Nessie was made popular in the early 1930s based on a first serious investigation that was undertaken in 1870 but never published. Over the years, there have been many reported sightings of Nessie, and even a few photographs have been taken of a strange creature out in the middle of Loch Ness. However, it's also been shown that many of those photographs were either doctored or set up with uh, stagecraft, if you will. Although there have been some serious scientific investigations, it's not clear whether or not there's any definitive proof that there's really something there. And I believe that the Scottish locals in the Loch Ness area hope that nothing is ever found and that the myths stay alive and attractive to tourists because nothing attracts them like a good legendary myth. Well, the human mind needs explanations for mysterious happening. This happens when scientific observation has not caught up with an observed phenomenon. So authoritarian leaders will explain it all to us, but they're often wrong. However, they are our leaders, and the dogma they espouse is generally accepted without questioning. A classic example is the heliocentric controversy that began in the mid-16th century. The basic question was, is the sun the center of our solar system, and does the earth circle around it, or does the sun circle around the earth? In 1543, Nicholas Copernicus, the polymath and a canon of the Catholic Church, published his theory that the sun was at the center. 
At first, the church did not object, and he died that same year. However, 70 years later, in 1613, the church did ban its publication, and it was a ban that lasted for 200 years. In 1615, when the scientist Galileo adapted and expanded on Copernicus's work, the church rejected his writings on the subject. And finally, in 1632, he was tried for heresy by the Inquisition and forced to recant that his assertion that the sun was the center of our solar system was not true. Found guilty, nevertheless, he was sentenced to home arrest for the rest of his life. Ultimately, science moves most myths to facts. So be tolerant of today's myths. They may be tomorrow's facts. As for me, I'm going to spend this evening with some books on ocean myths and their origin. After all, who doesn't love a good fairy tale? Well, that's it from me. Thank you for listening. We've been hearing from some of our listeners. It's really good to interact with you folks, so please feel free to write in, even if it's just to, to tell me how much you hate it and sort of implode my, my self-esteem. Uh, very easy to do, by the way. Simon wrote in about the deep sea mining episode. He did praise it for being fairly even-handed, an incredibly, incredibly difficult topic. People on both sides we've heard from have kind of said, fair enough, it was, it was at least even-handed. Uh, which is the best we could hope for, because like I say, it's a, it's a very contentious issue right now. I still haven't made my mind up. I still don't know where I, I fall. Uh, I certainly feel very strongly, but I'd say I feel very strongly in both directions. But what Simon wanted to point out was we were talking about how long it would take the nodules to reform, that it would take millions of years until those nodules re-coalesce from the seawater. And he just wanted to point out that the same is true of terrestrial mines. You know, they don't grow back, they don't recover, which is totally true, which is totally true. So I, I just wanted to say that the, the angle we were coming at that from is as biologists and approaching that as the, the main argument against it is the, the damage to the environment and the damage to the ecosystem there. So in the case of terrestrial mining, the environmental damage is done by the mining itself. The, the minerals that they're removing don't actually provide a habitat. There aren't really animals that are living directly on the ores that are being removed. It's the water runoff, it's the, it's the waste, it's the, the other things that are impacting the environment. And so as soon as that mining finishes, that environment, that ecosystem, it will start to recover immediately. The unusual situation with the deep sea is that the manganese nodules and the chimneys and the crusts themselves are the habitat. So these very niche animals, these very specific animals that live in these environments, aren't going to be able to start recolonizing until those nodules reform. So a terrestrial mine stops and the natural world can start to reclaim that area quite quickly. An area is deep sea mined, it might be millions of years before that habitat returns. That was maybe the, the slight confusion we had there. When we talked about it being millions of years to recover, we weren't sort of talking about it from a mineral resource standpoint, but from a habitat, the animals recovering standpoint. But thanks so much for writing in that, Simon, and it allowed us to then talk about it now and make it a bit clearer if that didn't come across. We owe a big, big thank you to Charlie. We received our first piece of fan art. And I Am Your Tongue Now tribute masterpiece. I will put it in the show notes. I will hide it in the logo. I'll get it in there somehow uh, because we really appreciate that. So thank you so much, Charlie. 
And the last message I received was from James McLean, who's a senior curator at the Natural History Museum in London. And when we were talking about naming animals from photographs rather than holotypes and how contentious that was and how difficult that was, we mentioned that it was really difficult to preserve jellies. It was really difficult to to preserve the holotype and maintain a holotype of a gelatinous animal in order for it to fulfill that role. And James pointed out that actually it is possible to preserve jellies quite well, actually, um, rather than fixing in formalin and then long-term preservation in ethanol, like we usually do with the fishes and the more complex organisms. He said that they tend to keep them in buffered formaldehyde, a buffered formalin solution, and they seem to be good long-term. And he's got some old specimens that are still in good condition. Thanks so much for writing in and correcting us. And I'm not going to argue with a... uh, a senior curator at the Natural History Museum. I'm going to take it that he knows what he's talking about. And that concludes this episode of the Deep Sea Podcast, where the real monsters are the friends we made along the way. I hope you're all doing okay. Things are still strange. Look after yourself. Look after those around you. Check in on folk. So we'll deep see you next time. And I abyss you already. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by our company, Amatus Oceanic. If you'd like to explore the deep sea for yourself, we can provide the technology and know-how to allow you to do that. Or if you'd like to bring the deep sea to your audience through storytelling, fact-checking, or presentations, we can help with that as well. We want the deep sea to be accessible to everyone. You're going to hide my face and disguise my voice, right, on this totally real documentary? I'm an actual real deep sea scientist, not an actor on some hack rating scrap. I've been silent for too long. I need to share the truth. There is no deep sea. We made it up. We did it for the incredible wealth and fame that comes with being a deep sea scientist. The excellent job security, the work-life balance is enough to corrupt anyone. So we made it up. We made it all up. The sea is only about 10 feet deep. All those massive container ships and ferries, they're on wheels. The Ever Given got stuck in the canal because it got a puncture. When you wade out on the beach and something brushes your leg and you think, oh no, 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 and you go back in, that's us. We spend our days off busy beaches, tickling the ankles of swimmers with kelp to keep them away from the sea. But it's getting too much work. Shark week, all those nasty looking deep sea animals we made up, making the sea really salty so it tasted gross. It's not working. People are still going out there and discovering the truth. Our moon prison is almost at capacity. It's time to confess and come clean. We made up the deep sea.